this episode of the Bet on Yourself podcast, I'm talking with Kathleen Brightman, who is a co-founder of Coos, a software company that aspires to lower transaction costs. She previously co-founded Tezos, a smart contract platform and cryptocurrency with an on-chain governance mechanism to coordinate and push upgrades to its network. She has also worked at Accenture, Bridgewater Associates, and The Wall Street Journal. This episode is crazy. It's totally different from all the rest of the episodes we've had so far, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. In this chat, Kathleen gives us a completely different perspective on all the disasters you would hope to avoid and how she has handled them when starting a company. Yeah, I mean, I, I joke that I, I live every um, entrepreneur's like you know wildest dreams and worst nightmares um, all in the course of the last few years. Kathleen studied philosophy and got into the internet by chance. She met her now husband, Arthur, in her sophomore year, who had a cryptocurrency project on the side that he was playing with at the time. And Kathleen describes this becoming an, if you can't beat them, join them moment, which is where her crypto career started. Um, a little bit of opportunism, a little bit of you know spousal encouragement, and a little bit of like rational economic calculation. <laughs> in this interview, Kathleen talks about leveling up and becoming an expert in a field you know nothing about, which is something I definitely relate to from my own career. She also touches on how working with her spouse as a co-founder accelerated their learning and growth by years. Also, the problems that arose by their funding rounds, dealing with difficult board members, trusting your instincts, as well as going to your mentors for advice when you need them and knowing which voices to listen to and which to ignore. I really loved her honesty. I think she offers an interesting perspective and gives insights into the crypto world, which I personally still find pretty confusing. Also, a quick FYI that we've chosen not to beep a few instances of colorful language in this episode to keep the original tone with which Kathleen shared her journey. So, buckle up. This one is fun. Right. So, Kathleen Brightman, thank you so much for being on the Bet on Yourself podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's a thrill to have you. Um, as we were talking about setting this up, I mentioned to you that many, many people mentioned your name to me when they heard I was doing a bit bet on yourself podcast. I think your career summarizes so many of these ups and downs and pivots and turns that happen when you choose this crazy life that is being an entrepreneur. So thank you for coming on and, and sharing your story with us. It's my pleasure. So I wonder if we could just start at the beginning. Um, what did you study and um, when did you know that you wanted to become an entrepreneur? Yeah, um, well, you know, I have a, I have a pretty untraditional, um, uh, I guess, path into this. Um, you know, for context, I, I work in cryptocurrencies, which I, I basically call pretend internet money. Um, my undergraduate degrees in philosophy, I took a bunch of classes in a lot of things. Philosophy was nice because, you know, it's the discipline of asking questions. It doesn't really, <laughs> it doesn't really require too much of a idea of what you want to do after graduation. You know, the philosophy factory was closed by the time I graduated. I, I usually joke. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a family where my mother is a, a public school teacher and my father um, was a contractor for 20 some odd years, um, especially with doing industrial boilers. Um, and so my father was an entrepreneur. He didn't make it look particularly glamorous. You know, my father works really hard. <laughs> um, and like, certainly I, I grew up in a very comfortable middle-class family, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't exactly like, you know, luxurious and he didn't make it look as though it was very easy to, to work for yourself. Um, however, uh, you know, I, I sort of wound up doing a lot of odd jobs in, in college, uh, mostly because I was on a college golf team my first two years of, of school. And that kind of stopped me from being able to do the sort of traditional um, traditional jobs on campus. And so I 
kind of just got into like the internet um, as 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 a genre of things. And um, I was pretty early to do things like, you know, set up Google Analytics pages for businesses. And that was like my first company with one of my friends from high school. Cool. And it was nice because it would be tailored to my schedule. Um, I didn't really have to ask for permission from anyone to start anything. Um, so my first, you know, job or I guess company was really born out of um, the massive inconvenience that was, you know, the, the time that I had my schedule eating away at golf practice. And um, I met my husband when I was a sophomore in college. And uh, he was really smitten with the fact that I was running my own business. <laughs> um, I don't know why he found this attractive. I didn't find it, you know, particularly <laughs> endearing. Um, but he always said to me, like, in our early courtship, like, oh, it would be fantastic if we were able to work together. And I reflected on, you know, some of my relationships with my co-founders. And I'm like, that sounds terrible. <laughs> um, because it's, it puts a lot of strain on any relationship to have to negotiate, like, you know, business decisions. Yeah. Um, but he, he sort of harbored this fantasy for years and years. Um, I did not. <laughs> and um, while my, my husband always really liked to fiddle with things in his, um, in his side projects, as most smart people do, right? And um, he sort of had this, this cryptocurrency project that he was tinkering around with that, you know, candidly, he wouldn't shut up about. And uh, I had a sort of, if you can't beat him, join him moment <laughs> in like 2013, 2014, um, a few years after graduation. And uh, the ideas that were sort of, um, I guess, proposed in this original white paper, this original, um, you know, cryptocurrency thesis um, became really trendy, I guess, in 2016. And we had a sort of, you know, do it or, or, or don't moment. Um, at the time, my husband was working at Waymo, uh, which is like the self-driving car company attached to Google X. And he was very happy <laughs> um, at Google. And um, in terms of relative opportunity cost, <laughs> I, was, I was clearly the logical Brightman to kind of, uh, you know, help out and take this hobbyist project and professionalize it and kind of take it over the finish line. Uh -huh. um, and so, uh, you know, my husband got to fulfill his fantasy of working with me. <laughs> I don't know if it's still a fantasy of his, but um, uh, he got, you know, to finally work together. And, uh, and, and you know, I, I saw it as a win because my husband got to keep his, you know, job that was candidly fantastic. Um, while I did something that was, I guess, a bit more like, you know, potential higher upside than what I was doing, which was like kind of a boring job at a, a tr more traditional startup. Mm -hmm. So. Um, a little bit of opportunism, a little bit of, you know, spousal encouragement and a little bit of like rational economic calculation. <laughs> wow. I, I think it's incredible the way that you took this interest of yours. You noticed an opportunity where it was just kind of entering the space. Crypto was becoming a real thing. Um, and you're such an early adopter. So it, it's absolutely making a big bet on yourself for sure. What... Um, what about crypto in particular piqued your interest? Because I think many people, even very tech savvy people, I'm actually talking about myself, find crypto a little intimidating and hard to kind of like jump in in an initial understanding. Like what piqued your interest and how did you get over kind of that maybe fear of like not quite understanding this brand new concept that was coming out? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to understand because it's candidly insane that it works. Um, so basically, people have been trying to represent money on the internet in some way, right? Um, since the early to mid 90s. And a lot of really early efforts to this end have failed miserably, right? right. And so in 2008, um, Satoshi Nakamoto, which you know is presumably a pseudonym, unless you're 
um, Liam McGrath Goodman of Newsweek, who you know found a guy named Dorian Nakamoto in Santa Barbara, and was like, "That's him." Anyway, um, for most for most reasonable people, um, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto is supposed to represent a pseudonym. Uh, this person or group of people um, released the white paper that describes an alternative to um, you know what they call like sort of banks and traditional financial institutions, um, which is Bitcoin, which is a peer-to-peer -peer electronic currency. Um, what's unique about Bitcoin as opposed to other efforts um, that preceded it is that Bitcoin basically doesn't necessitate the use of a centralized entity in order to do the accounting for, you know, this, this digital currency. Um, it's a peer-to-peer -peer network. Basically, you trust the outcome of the ledger of who owns what because you trust the process. So it's all open sourced. Anyone can participate in the Bitcoin network. It's extraordinarily democratic in that way. And so if you're looking for an alternative to like sort of the, the siloed groups of like Visa, MasterCard, all of the other, you know, sort of credit card processors and, and um, fiefdoms that control value transfer on the internet, Bitcoin truly is like a third way outside of that um, path. And, um, you know, it solves a problem in computer science that it like plagued people for a really long time, but it also solves a massive problem in the history of finance, right? So like as, as long as people have been tra like transporting value across large swaths of land, they've had to use some form of intermediary unless they wanted to bear the burden of carrying goods on their person, <laughs> which obviously makes you a massive target for bandits and all that good stuff. So, you know, historically, you were either, you know, bringing around a lot of value on yourself, which, which posed a risk, or you had to trust someone else, which basically necessitated, you know, the groups of credits and intermediaries and, and sort of a top-down debt collection structure that, um, you know, exists in some form today, obviously, in a very different way than it did in, like, the Middle Ages. So, um, you know, Bitcoin, what Bitcoin, frankly, allows you to do is transmit value across the world without the use of a third-party intermediary. Instead, you're using a peer-to-peer -peer network um, that creates a system of account um, that is checked by, you know, millions of people around the world or could be checked by anyone on the internet. And so... Um, this opportunity to do this in a modern way, um, well, it's very relevant now because the world is only getting smaller, which I think we've all really realized it during 2020 um, as we were coming out the other side of that. And you saw this opportunity to kind of empower this and put your own spin on it. And you ended up founding Tezos. So what was the original spin or the unique um, entry point that inspired you to start your own application within cryptocurrency world? Sure, yeah. So basically, you know, Bitcoin debuted in 2009. It had sort of a, a shaky start in the sense that, you know, it wasn't an instant success by any means. Oh. Um, but, you know, if you were in the know about these efforts in, in computer science and applied cryptography, you thought it was either, you know, an interesting idea at the very least, if not like completely revolutionary. Um, it took a few years of people kind of, um, you know, iterating on this and popularizing the ideas and uh, to really grasp um, the potential impact of it. But by 2013, um, a lot of people had become interested in it. At the very least, is like an interesting experiment for, you know, doing things like gambling. Um, obviously, one of the major applications that took um, hold was the Silk Road, which was a, you know, basically a drug marketplace. Um, so, you know, it was a lot of illicit stuff, but it was also a lot of, you know, pretty innocuous, like kind of dopey stuff. And, uh, and, and so what was saying was like, um, because a lot of money had flowed into Bitcoin as a project, there were a lot of innovations that came to the fore around this time that were like, hey, you know, Bitcoin's really cool, but it's basically a pseudonymous network, meaning like it doesn't take too much to figure out who's where um, and who owns what. Um, you know, in the early days of the internet, people thought that IP addresses made you anonymous. That's clearly not true. <laughs> but, um, you know, the same naivete um, was brought to the discussion with Bitcoin. It's like, you know, hey, you know, I have an address. It doesn't say Kathleen Brightman on it, but like you could pretty easily kind of figure out what's going on. Um, so, you know, one of the innovations that 
uh, I guess, came to the fore around 2013, for example, was the idea of having anonymous transactions in a Bitcoin network, um, which led to the origination of a cryptocurrency called Zcash. What very few people know is that um, the people who invented the zero knowledge proofs that allow you to anonymize your transactions in cryptocurrencies um, came to the Bitcoin developers and said like, hey, you know, we've got this application that could anonymize transactions in the Bitcoin network. And, you know, the core developers at the time said like, eh, you know, thanks, but no thanks. Um, and so there were a lot of innovations that were basically tabled um, that didn't go into the Bitcoin ecosystem, but were still being, you know, stewarded in, in the form of creating new cryptocurrencies. What's problematic about this, is, which is what's discussed in the Tezos position paper, is that money obviously takes hold through network effects. Like, it would be a real pain in the butt if every time, you know, a new company sprung up, you had to use a, their currency that they created in order to tr transact with them. Um, money thrives through network effects. And so if you, every time you have a new application that could arguably make a cryptocurrency better, it has to be um, bootstrapped through a new network. That's just massively inconvenient. So the core observation that led to Tezos was that, hey, you know, Bitcoin's ultimately our consensus building technology, meaning the protocol in Bitcoin allows you to consent, come to consensus on who owns what in, in the ledger uh, that dictates what the Bitcoin network is. Um, wouldn't it be better if we took that one step further and also made a consensus building technology for instantiating upgrades to the protocol? Meaning like, hey, if we all agree anonymity is like a benefit to the network, why don't we have a way for people to query and, and basically formalize a process for um, pushing out you know, uh, anonymous transactions as an upgrade or a feature? So um, that's what Tezos basically does, is we allow people who own the token in the network to not just come to consensus on who owns what in the network, but also to come to consensus on upgrades and adding new features into the protocol itself. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> thank you for that explanation, because that actually cleared up several things for me um, that have otherwise felt intimidating. But as you were giving this very eloquent explanation, I was struck by the fact that you did not study computer science in school you studied philosophy you really i i think um you obviously are somebody who used that superpower of asking the right questions and made yourself very fluent in something that was outside your area of expertise i relate to that because when i first started at amazon and google thankfully it was it was similarly at the very beginning of both of their trajectories amazon was just inventing e-commerce when i got to google it was still very early years of like search technology and everything we're developing so i felt like i i was a couple years behind all these people had phds in computer science and machine learning um but i really had to learn it and start to ask the right questions so that i could even keep up or even knew know what they were working on what did you do to lean in and become this eloquent expert who could just give rattle off this beautiful explanation of something that <laughs> is mind-boggling how oh how did you become so fluent well, you, you flatter me. Um, no, I mean, I've been at this for five years is like the short answer. But um, the, the long answer is, um, you know, I, I, uh, I, my introduction to this was through my husband, who um, is really an engineer's engineer. And um, if, they, if they've never worked with their spouse, that there's like a romance to working together that it's like all, you know, holding hands and like being, you know, lovey-dovey. Um, au contraire, um, you know, it's, it's actually like you wind up with your harshest critic, right? Because like someone who knows your BS is like... <laughs> on your case all the time and, and wants to make sure that you know what you're talking about so that you can be either, in my husband's case, a useful interlocutor um, uh, or, you know, just someone to parry with, right? And um, so, you know, basically I, I 
I guess at some point in like 2013 or, or so, I just had my husband like sit me down and I was like, hey, you know, like I need to know this from first principles. There's nothing my husband hates more than like reasoning through metaphor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and like he, he, I think it makes his skin curl. Um, and, uh, and so I just realized like if I was going to have to talk about this, like I was going to actually have to know what I was talking about. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think um, living with someone who is, you know, an extremely principled engineer and someone who like really doesn't suffer fools, um, you know, is, is probably the best way to become an expert in almost anything. Um, and, uh, and so, um, you know, I, I credit him with like really not easing up on me or letting me, you know, kind of BS my way through anything, um, which is, which is overall a good thing. It's, it's, it's sometimes it's a little bit like, you know, I wish it would, would turn off every now and again, but uh, <laughs> I prefer, I prefer being on than off. I can only imagine there's both major advantages and disadvantages to working with your spouse as a co-founder. Um, I think it is lovely the opportunity for it to raise your game because uh, he also knows your strengths and you know his better and how to leverage that. And also not letting you kind of hide your weaknesses by having to lead into them. I think I'm sure accelerated your learning and growth by years by being forced to face that. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, we're, 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 both pretty hard on each other but it's mostly because like we care about each other and um you know i think uh I, I think you know we have the safety and comfort of our relationship right to try out a lot of things and to talk about ideas really openly that you wouldn't be able to with someone who you didn't trust like fully um so the openness that we can like bring to any sort of um problem and like the you know open communication that it lends itself to when you are also in a romantic relationship um it makes everything a little bit more stressful like the highs are really high and the lows are really low um, but ultimately, I think it allows us to act much more quickly than, than most traditional co-founders would. And I think that's amazing that you address that head on because across your entrepreneurial journey, you have had some very high highs and some low lows. Uh, I think this story in Tezos alone, let alone your, your uh, continued ventures after that, is a great illustration of that. Can you walk us through kind of some of this journey that you had of the high highs and low lows? Because this involves, I mean, it sounds like a movie plot, honestly. You've got like conflict with board members, you've got lawsuits, you've got like incredible discoveries, you built this incredibly successful company. So like all the drama you could need for a really good story. Yeah, I know. If, if Aaron Sorkin's listening, you know, you can hit me up. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I joke that I, I live every um, entrepreneur's like, you know, wildest dreams and worst nightmares um, all in the course of the last few years. And, um, you know, basically, I, I had mentioned before, I, I kind of pitched in uh, to help my husband with his, you know, passion project, which was Tezos. And uh, that was like late 2016. Um, around that time, uh, Bitcoin had kind of taken off again as, as a project and it saw a bit of a revival. Um, more importantly, a, a second project had entered the cryptocurrency space and saw some success called Ethereum. Um, Ethereum is a smart contract platform in many ways, you know, similar to Bitcoin, um, but for the fact that you can program um, transactions like dynamically using smart contracts. And so um, Ethereum's launch in 2015 sort of um, revived interest in the space. Uh, there are a lot of startups that sprung up around this, uh, and there are a lot of ideas building on Ethereum um, to make tokens that sat on top of the network um, that were often called app coins. So this all kind of happened in like 2016, 2017. Um, around that time, we were also thinking of, of launching Tezos um, as some sort of network, but it was unclear how to do that. Um, you know, there was no clear path 
so, you know, one of the tenets of entrepreneurship is like, hey, you know, if if you're doing one thing that's like already quite difficult, don't overthink the other things. Like try to be very vanilla with the stuff that, you know, are kind of paved paths. Like don't try to innovate in too many ways because you'll just get, you know, cut, you'll blow up um, or lose steam or, you know, whatever, some sort of failure mode. And uh, and so, you know, we, we did, I think, what was the pragmatic thing to do, which is um, my husband received an invitation from this guy he had met through um, this project that he was interested in at Honduras, uh, this guy, Johan Gebers, who had been the COO of a company that was backed by a bunch of, you know, fancy venture capitalists in, um, in California. And uh, Johan, um, you know, the company went bust around like 2013, and Johan retreated to uh, the, the canton of Zug in, uh, in Switzerland, and he trademarked this idea of a crypto valley, which, you know, it sounds like Silicon Valley, but it's crypto, so it's different. And uh, the Crypto Valley premise was like, hey, you know, we've got this really small canton that's, you know, very business friendly. Um, why don't we carve out a place where, like, we could teach lawmakers and regulators about cryptocurrency specifically and maybe sort of imbue like a culture of um, innovation around this new technology that's, you know, burgeoning and, and becoming more successful and kind of attract people to come in and do business there. Um, and sort of have strength in numbers because at the time, you know, it was really unclear how any of this was going to be treated by a government. Um, and there were businesses sprouting up to do things like custody, to do things like exchanges, and they were all facing like a tremendous amount of ambiguity. So there was a strength in having an ethos and a culture in a centralized place. So to Johan's credit, he did, you know, trademark that, bring in some people. Um, a lot of successful businesses came to the Crypto Valley and um, were established there. One of the more famous entities that was established there was called the Ethereum Foundation, which was basically uh, a nonprofit that was meant to endow the Ethereum network, right? And, uh, and act as a patron to the open source software that would you know, establish the Ethereum network. They did um, you know, a fundraiser in 2014 to basically bootstrap you know, participants into their network to launch a currency. At the time they raised something like $16 million um, you know, eventually the, the, you know, network launched and it was a massive success. Um, you know, the principle was that having an open source, um, nonprofit, uh, would allow you to do things like post a trademark, do like, you know, have all sorts of relevant IP, um, also coordinate people who are developing into one entity. Like, great. That's extremely vanilla. Let's do that. <laughs> um, and so Arthur visited the, you know, Canton of Zug on Johan's invitation. He met MME, which was the lawyers to the Ethereum Foundation. Um, and they, you know, got to discussing what could be done about Tezos. And, uh, you know, this, this um, foundation model seemed very straightforward and, and it worked for Ethereum. So like, why overthink what works for your competitor? <laughs> um, the one problem with our model um, was that we already had a bunch of, you know, IP developed in a Delaware C Corp. And so it was unclear how to like kind of bridge the gap of like taking an American company, doing this nonprofit Swiss thing, like, uh, it's, it's a little bit weird when you get into the IP um, transfer issues. So, you know, our, our lawyers being very pragmatic proposed that um, there be a, a board established that was separate and independent from me and Arthur, and that we would arrange for there to be a potential sale of our company to the Tezos Foundation if, you know, the network and IP that we developed did what we said it was going to do, right? And uh, that sounds very straightforward from a corporate governance perspective. <laughs> um, where it gets complicated is, uh, you know, the fanfare around Tezos kind of grew over the course of 2017. 
And the foundation ran a fundraiser to do the same thing that the Ethereum Foundation had done, which is like endow um, you know, a, a patron uh, for the network and be able to do things like coordinate development, you know, pay, pay relevant lawyers, so on and so forth. Um, the problem is the Tezos Foundation raised $232 million in 14 days. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's a lot of money. And, uh, and you know, 30,000 people also participated in the fundraiser. Wow. So yeah, crazy. Um, and, uh, so that was nice, you know, it was like, oh, hey, you know, that's, that's a lot of money. That's, there's a lot of things that can be done with $232 million. <laughs> oh, um, and you have $232 million. You've really bet the farm on it. Your Arthur has now left his job at Google uh, at Waymo. Oh, no, oh. no, Arthur didn't. no, no, no. Arthur didn't leave. <laughs> um, what's in all feet in all camps at this point. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Complex. This yeah. That big, really fast. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, no, it was it was really big, right? And so this is like July 2017. We're like, oh, you know, shit. <laughs> um, it was, you know, we felt like we were in a good position because the code base was basically complete. Like we had all these developers who were working really diligently, who had just, you know, built this like really sophisticated website um, and really sophisticated code base. And there was really nothing like kind of stopping us from from you know going going forward. Yeah. Um, Basically, you know, this is, this is a good lesson for people, I suppose. Um, but I like to, <laughs> I like in this, basically the foundation was something like a megafauna, like one of those big squads, right? Um, that was just dumped in the middle of an Amazon and then like a bunch of predators came out right after. <laughs> so um, it had no, ch no snowball's chance in hell of like surviving, right? Um, basically the second that, you know, all the money was collected, um, you know, people came scrounging around and like you kind of learn people's true colors, right? Like the second that that much money hits anything. Um, you know, by the time most entities or traditional corporations make, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, they have some natural antibodies <laughs> um, that, you know, kind of prevent against um, malfeasance. Um, the Tezos Foundation lacked those antibodies. And so very quickly, you know, uh, the knives came out, right? Um, you know, the, the people who we had contracted with for three years to this like development shop in France, you know, kind of assumed that they would get a new contract with the Tezos Foundation, for example, <laughs> and and uh, Johan just decided to like, uh, who was the president of the foundation? Sorry, um, one of three members of the board, but the president, so like the person who was supposed to be signing off on stuff. Johan just decided like, no, you know, I think I'm actually gonna like not hire those guys. I'm gonna hire these Ukrainian developers who are like 50 grand a year instead. So like, oh, that's not what we thought you would do, <laughs> and. Uh, and he, you know, he went on vacation for like a month and a half and we didn't hear from him. And in the meantime, the development shop like kind of went crazy. And, you know, they started to make demands of, of you know, originally they had had like this very reasonable contract. And then they started asking for like tens of millions of dollars with no, <laughs> with no like um, guarantee of having to work on the project, for example. <laughs> and, uh, and it was just like, oh great, you're crazy too now. <laughs> And, uh, and uh, you know, we would have people who would just basically be like hitting us up, like me and Arthur personally, and saying like, you know, what the hell is happening with Johan? Yeah. So this quickly became like, you know, Johan basically was sitting on all the money. He literally had the keys to ha like the Bitcoin stash in his personal safety deposit box, defying all, you know, corporate norms around governance and crypto assets. Wow. And, you know, he had basically gone dark and just, just like emerged from his cocoon in like September sometime to announce that he had hired the COO of his failing company, Monotos, 
um, as the CEO of the Tezos Foundation, he still hadn't hired any of the developers <laughs> um, and made like no effort towards, um, you know, kind of uh, satisfying any sort of uh, activity that would lend itself to the launch of the network. And so we were stuck, you know, candidly up Shit Creek without a paddle. We were just like, well, you know, if Johan's not going to do this, someone has to. And so, um, you know, we sort of corralled the people who had been working on the project. We tried to keep them abreast of what was up, so on and so forth. And uh, around the same time, you know, it became pretty obvious that there had been this reporter who was like literally taking screenshots of like my husband's, um, you know, personal Facebook page and posting them to like gossip groups. Um, in the in Telegram chats to kind of like stoke, um, you know, some sort of discontent, right? And, uh, you know, plainly stalking us, like emailing people I worked with when I was 18 and basically um, haranguing them to go on the record saying something, you know, negative, I suppose, about me. Um, and so, like, these people were just like convinced that like Tezos would never launch, right? And Johan, um, you know, more or less fed them a story of like, yes, I am being under, I'm under attack from the Brightmans for trying to control the Tezos Foundation, right? Um, and I just thought it was kind of funny because like, he's clearly crazy, you know? At this point, the guy has done absolutely, you know, fucking nothing towards um, satisfying his contractual obligations. And, you know, Arthur and me are kind of, we don't have any access to the funds. We have absolutely no leverage in this conversation. We have, you know, our savings basically, and um, a contract with a Swiss nonprofit who seemed determined to not honor that because guess what? They have $232 million and we have buckets, right? Thanks. So um, basically, Johan goes to the press, he makes these allegations. Um, we have like the dumbest reporter in the world who's like more than willing to write this account because she's so convinced that like Arthur and me are clearly the bad guys in this. Um, you know, Johan has the benefit of being this sort of elder statesman. He talks very slowly and very regally. And I'm just a crazy person from New Jersey. So, like, you know, I get the contrast. <laughs> it escalated so quickly. Within a span of a few months, you went from an idea to a seemingly well-acting partner, an opportunity to do something cutting edge, uh, yeah. huge raise, and then everything hits the fan. Like everything just goes wild within just a few months. What were you thinking? Oh, yeah. Did you, were you questioning yourself? Were you thinking like, uh, because if everyone is saying something completely opposite to what you know to be true, how do you know yeah. then um, keep kind of your faith in yourself and, and are able to put together a plan of attack of like, how do we get in front of this? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I had really good advice from people that unfortunately I didn't heed. So I wanted to do the thing that, like, I guess just as this did with uh, National Enquirer, which is just basically be like, hey, this idiot is stalking me. Um, here's what they're going to say. Here's why they're going to say it. The truth is they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Um, and, you know, that was fair enough. I think I had a lot of conviction in the team. So, like, what was encouraging is, like, no one quit, right? <laughs> like, there was, there were, like, people who were working on this for three years. Um, who weren't going to let this just go by because they missed a few paved checks, you know, like this is a, this is bigger than us, right? Um, where it got frustrating was like, you know, uh, the press builds you up to, to bring you down, right? Um, like that's just a tale as old as time. And so like, I guess the, the schadenfreude of, of people who were kind of adjacent to this, like pissed me off so mightily 
that, you know, at some point, I don't even think I cared if, if I ever saw a cent out of this. Like, I just wanted to launch the thing <laughs> um, to just be like, through you, like, you can't make the accusation that um, this won't launch because it's so damn close anyway. And if you think I'm going to let some, like, deranged nitwit um, who is supposed to be doing an administrative task and failing to do the most basic things, screw up something that I care very deeply about, you've got another thing coming. So we basically went into like war mode um, and uh, we, we just sort of like uh, put our ducks in a row and we were just like, hey, listen, you know, this thing has to launch and it's going to happen by hook or by crook, ha, ha, ha. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my husband and I moved to Paris and we, you know, kind of aligned ourselves with the team and sat down with them and um, we just sort of resolved to get through this. Where things get complicated is sometime in November, <laughs> six five fashion lawsuit showed up um, from people who saw the endowment of the foundation, which was at the time around $1.5 billion. And they said, hey, 30% of that's a pretty nice cut. <laughs> and uh, so they, they levied six five fashion lawsuits against us. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that was, that was all sorts of fun. What was mostly a pain in the ass about that was um, we were named co-defendants along with the foundation. And so, what became like something that we could be openly like transparent about is like, hey, you know, this guy's being a real dick, you know, <laughs> um, he's screwing things up. We couldn't say anything. Like the number one piece of advice during any litigation is, is like, shut the hell up. And so um, we couldn't even sort of plead our case. Um, meanwhile, Johan was still leaking things to the press with, with reckless abandon. And so like, for example, we had an indemnification clause in our original contract. And so we tried to execute on that. <laughs> um, because legal bills are expensive. And, uh, and you know, Reuters ran a headline, Brightman's looking for a bailout, as though we were like AIG or something. And so it was just like so patently one-sided. Like at some point I just had to stop caring. And, uh, you know, one thing Irish culture and Jewish culture do really well is gallows humor. So at some point we just like, you know, leaned into it. We were just like, this is so ridiculous. These people are so like high on their own supply. Meanwhile, Johan's not doing anything to launch the network, and we still got everyone working, you know, so we're not too concerned about the whole thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it sucks. I mean, litigation in the U.S. is like a very slow-moving, creaky process. Um, the initial steps are extremely expensive. The foundation wasn't doing anything to pay for things. So we retained counsel and, you know, ironically had to basically defend uh, the foundation. <laughs> and we were like forced to kind of align with them no matter, you know, no matter how deeply we were getting fucked by them. And, uh, and so it was, it was just like adding insult to injury at that point. And we couldn't even, you know, sort of plead our case to the people who um, had supported the project, right? And explain to them like, hey, we know that like, you know, Johan's rotten, but don't, you know, worry about it. Um, you know, at some point, there was a community member from like the original 30,000 people who contributed to this fundraiser, um, who, you know, approached us and he was like, hey, is there anything you can do? And I'm like, funny, you should ask. <laughs> Um, so I put him in touch with one of our attorneys and, uh, you know, he basically founded a second foundation. The idea was that, hey, if the first foundation is not going to play ball, we're going to have these dudes launch the network because that'll at least, you know, make sure that people receive the tokens that they had, you know, kind of expected in, in the network launch. Um, so that wound up, you know, being what, what won things over. Basically, the, the second foundation was announced in um, February of 2018. You know, shortly thereafter, Johan resigned in some sort of, you know, spooky closed door meeting um, in Switzerland. And the person who um, had spearheaded the second foundation's origin, this guy, Ryan Jesperson, um, became installed as the first foundation's president. 
Um, but yeah, I would say from like November to February, the whole thing was like a hall of mirrors. You know, I was being accused of, of manipulating an organization that I had no control over. While some doofus was like literally sitting with a billion dollars of Bitcoin in his personal safety deposit box saying that like, you know, I was being the unreasonable party. <laughs> um, uh, so, I mean, it was insulting and like stupid, but like, you know, for, for proof of who is in the wrong, like I'm still working with the project and that dude is like off in Switzerland, you know, um, probably looking for his next mark. Um, the other thing that was kind of disorienting about the whole affair was like the second that, you know, the, the, the conflict broke, um, I don't consider it much of a conflict when one person has a billion dollars and you have nothing, but, <laughs> um, and you're basically being, you know, scapegoated um, by, you know, someone who thinks that the walls are talking to him. Uh, it was, was, you know, the second that, like, things kind of went sideways in the press, um, you know, we got all these inbound uh, pieces of information about Johan. So, like, it was from people who I knew, too, right? So, like, I spent a weekend in Mexico City with this, um, this dude, Jeff Bone, who's like an angel investor from Texas. And he had mentioned like, hey, I supported, you know, the Tezos project, like I think functional programming is really cool. And, you know, he was nerding out with me. And, uh, you know, if, when he saw the news about Yoho, he's like, oh, you know, I put in $2 million to Monitas and I just sort of wrote it off a few years ago as a non-investment because Johan like has some sort of weird scheming thing with the Seychelles or whatever. And, uh, and I have no corporate governance recourse. I was like, you know, it would have been nice for you to mention that in uh, Mexico City. <laughs> Um, yeah, and, uh, you know, basically, like, you know, MME, the attorneys who, uh, who, who, like, suggested Johan as, as the um, trustee of this foundation, you know, cared to inform us that he was also a client of theirs, you know, in the U.S. that would normally just, you know, trigger a disclosure. Um, you know, a lot of people were like, yeah, no one likes that guy. And I'm like, you don't tell me you liked that guy. <laughs> um, so it was a lot of, like, you know, it was very disorienting, right? And uh, in the sense that, like, you know, no one said anything wrong about Johan, even people who were very close to him and, and arguably had a conflict. Um, and then all of a sudden, like, you know, it was a bit of like, oh, yeah, you didn't know that? I thought you knew that, you know, Johan was declaring bankruptcy in Canada, like, five years earlier. I'm like, no, we didn't miss that one. <laughs> um, so it was just, like, complete hall of mirrors. And that was probably, like, the most frustrating part um, was, was just, like, how preposterously bad he was <laughs> um versus you know versus kind of the reality of, of the situation which yeah yeah i can't even imagine it does remind me of my my very very worst day at work as as you know is when um jeff bezos crashed in a helicopter that i had arranged for him um but it taught me that experience which is nothing like what you just described that was that's a walk in the park compared to what you just went through that taught i don't know about that <laughs> No, I hope we never can compare yeah. <laughs> stories. I hope never to be in your shoes or you, you in those. But I, it, it was an interesting process because I learned a lot about myself and my instincts. And I kind of, I, I saw myself in a new light having survived um, a crisis, which prepared me for future like hardships in, in my entrepreneurial journey. On the other side of this now, um, what did you learn about yourself? How did you how did you even keep your head on straight among all this hall of mirrors and this gallow humor? And how did you yeah. get where you trusted your instincts and you knew you felt empowered to be able to carry it forward despite all this unpredictable chaos? Yeah, well, you know, I like I like reading stories and I, I like reading history. And um, you know, maybe it's just sheer arrogance, but like I just refuse to believe that some idiot whose like job was to basically, you know, uh, sign his name on some checks. Um, was going to derail a project that like was so clearly you know um 
was so clearly like prescient and you know in 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 demand and and um and and so far along like who who did he think he was um you know i i also like you know, I, I have confidence in, in things that I do and I take pride in my work, but I, I more importantly, like I have a ton of conviction in my husband. Um, and, uh, you know, really I, I credit my participation in this, um, project as like an active, an active love. It sounds corny, but like I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think that he was, you know, absolutely brilliant and that I was, you know, willing to follow him into the dark. And, um, this definitely was like a lot more than what I bargained for. So like, you know, Arthur and I joke about that. <laughs> Um, I thought I was going to be doing this for six months <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, kind of applying back for jobs, you know, after he left Google, um, that was like the tacit arrangement. Um, but clearly I got sucked into this vortex of, of drama and lawsuits and, and all sorts of BS, um, that lasted for, you know, two years. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think I became emboldened just by like the low quality of my adversaries, you know, even in the lawsuits, for example, like the lead plaintiff was this guy, Armin and Vari. And, uh, we found Armin on the internet because his hobby was, was posting on auto admit, which is like a racist 4chan. And the guy would say the most disgusting things. I think he's the person who coined the phrase bright kike. And, uh, and he also talked about like raping me, killing Gevers. Like he, he wrote all sorts of words that I'm not going to like, uh, really on this, on this, you know, podcast because I assume it's somewhat family friendly. And, uh, and you know, the guy was just disgusting. I'm like, no, like this person can't win. <laughs> Um, the second people who became the lead plaintiff after Armin was, of course, dismissed, um, were, you know, kind of the, uh, uh, patriot, the patriot, they're, they're from this family that has a few business holdings. And the patriarch of the family, around the time that they became the lead plaintiff, um, was imprisoned, uh, in Australia for raping a 12 year old girl. <laughs> so, like, these are bad people. And I, like, you know, whether or not this has any sort of benefit for me in the end, like, they cannot win. <laughs> so, um, it was, it was more than, it was more than like, hey, you know, win some, lose some. Like, I gave it my best shot. I was like, no, this is like morally wrong. <laughs> and I am determined to like not lose to like some, you know, doofy like bozo in Switzerland and, uh, and like a, you know, actual child rapist and, uh, you know, with like some plaintiff counsel, like, nope, not happening. Like, Tezos will win. Um, and, uh, and the network will succeed. So, I think that emboldened me. Um, another thing is like, you know, I, I do a pretty good job of cultivating, you know, close friendships. And uh, I have a lot of mentors and like, you know, people were checking in on me and, and making sure that, you know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't going completely nuts. And, um, you know, I just exhausted my resources and my network. And it was fun because like people got really creative with how to help me problem solve through this. One of my favorite anecdotes is like, <laughs> I met this, I, I met a, a, a fellow um, in Germany um, a few months prior and he was also an entrepreneur and one thing I like about fellow entrepreneurs is like they usually get it you know um, and uh, and he was kind of like trying to solution through issues for like how to help out with the Gevers thing and at some point Gevers was fishing around for like um, another board member and so this gentleman you know called me and he's like it's a crazy idea but I know this prostitute who we could probably hire to, to become a honeypot for Johan. And I'm like, wow, that's really crazy. But, you know, there's no bad ideas in brainstorming. Like, what do I know? <laughs> and uh, and so I was like, I'm going gonna, 
I'm going to call my one of my mentors and see what he thinks about this. And my mentor was like, are you telling me this because you need to pay your Zcash or like, what's the problem here? <laughs> so, um, you know, we didn't wind up hiring a prostitute, but I always have to say like, um, that is the level of solutioning that went through into this, into this, uh, into this affair, which, which was just at some points like very hilarious. And, you know, I can laugh about it now, obviously, because we came out on the other side of it. Wow. I just, that's insane. Um, two things that stick out to me that I think if someone is in any, <laughs> a stressful scenario, which hopefully does not involve that cast of characters, <laughs> the real take here are you trusted your instincts. You knew you had chosen your co-founder and life partner very carefully. So you knew you were standing on firm ground. And then you had this, um, the wherewithal to go to your trusted advisors, to have people that you knew you could trust who were going to offer you good, actionable advice. <laughs> and, <a> good <laughs> and bad. <laughs> Um, <laughs> listen to and what voices not to, I think is such yeah. a being an entrepreneur because we're all trying to do things we've never done before. And we all feel like everyone um, else is such an expert. I think that's the, probably the biggest thing is I feel like I've, I've seen behind the curtain in, in Oz, you know, and I've looked behind and actually everyone's just faking it or making it up as they go. And I actually found that a very liberating uh, realization to realize all these people who, um, seems so important or so so powerful actually are just you know there's a lot of smoke and mirrors so oh yeah yeah so talk me through the exit um from that crazy situation and what led you into your next venture which is coast yeah so um you know basically the long and the short of it is like Gebers resigns on you know february 22nd um low you know everything works fine after um you know we managed to grow the team and do some like, you know, cool innovations on the engineering side while he was, you know, off, you know, doing whatever the hell he was doing. And, uh, and so everything was, you know, copacetic there, thereafter. Um, you know, the foundation is, is still managed by an independent council to suggest, uh, you know, a network that launched in, in uh, June of 2018. Um, it's been up and running for the last, you know, last few years without any sort of incident. Um, the team has managed to grow. It's all been, it's all been great. Um, one thing that, you know, after the launch, there was a little bit of like a, what now? Um, so I, uh, I, I had always been interested in actually how to use, you know, cryptocurrencies and, and, um, what their biggest think impact could be. And I see a lot of similarities between like early cryptocurrency culture and gaming culture. Um, one of the largest contributors to the, um, Tezos Foundation fundraiser, um, was, was from a gaming company. And so that allowed me to like, you know, kind of get to know the CEO there and ask him some questions. And I saw a lot of, you know, cultural similarities. And um, so I, I did a bit of a survey of what, what were interesting opportunities in the gaming space that could benefit from better economics that could be, you know, um, instantiated through the use of smart contracts um, and cryptocurrencies. And I came upon, upon uh, uh, basically collectible card games as a genre I wanted to endeavor into. Um, that's things like Magic the Gathering, but also Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon, so on and so forth. Um, so I've, I've been working on a, a game that uses um, those, uh, those elements and also a cryptocurrency to make a more efficient marketplace online. Um, you know, that's, that's going in an interesting direction. Um, and I'm also working in tandem with that on, on you know, similarly, I guess, positioned ways to um, uh, trade digital goods. So things like art pieces and you know, factual ownerships of, of, of different elements. Um, you know, the, the underlying principle is that I think um, blockchains are good for many things. One thing that they're really good at is um, uniting secondaries markets and um, making them work more efficiently. And um, video games are basically like, you know, 
small digital economies. Um, so it, it makes a lot of sense to try that out as the first test bed before you know we go off revolutionizing finance the way most people think about cryptocurrencies, or at least say that we'll revolutionize things in the press. Yeah, how we, uh, what a common theme I hear across this is knowing when to lean into something. You you seem to have a talent or. An uh, an interest or a passion for watching emerging technologies and see, finding new applications for it. Um, you did that with cryptocurrency, you're seeing new applications within gaming and all these different ideas. Is that something that you just come naturally by? Are you, or do you take an academic approach to it? Are you, or you just have this instinct where you see something that feels right? I, I'm, I'm pretty methodical with how I, with how I approach things, um, uh, almost like deeply unromantically, you know, to the point, I, I, I like to think that I, I, I I pair well with people who are like deeply, deeply passionate and I try to like draw out the goodness in them. Like my husband and I have a very different dynamic, you know, he lives and breathes um, uh, cryptocurrencies. He's, he's been studying finance since he was like seven years old. It's like his life's, you know, work to, to overthrow the banks, I assume. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I, I offer no parallel in my, um, in my early childhood, um, nor, nor later uh, years. And so, you know, I, I just try to like basically be a little bit opportunistic um, and find people who are, you know, extraordinarily intelligent and basically like corral them and, and get them to focus on one or two things and try to do them well. Um, you know, in some ways I'm, I'm very good at this. In some ways I could obviously use improvement, um, but I'm really enough in my career that I think, you know, I'll, I'll hopefully get better at it as the years go on. Um, and Lord knows like starting off on this, um, you know, very entrepreneurial journey when I was like 26 or whatever um, has, has, you know, given me a few, a few years of, of, you know, experience and some learnings. Wow. I, I love that you gather the right people around you. You kind of trust your experts. You trust your own instincts and expertise. And then you see unique opportunities, these irreplicable moments that probably will, if other people aren't pa paying attention, they're just going to pass them by. But you see them and you grab hold and kind of take advantage of that. That seems to be an entrepreneurial formula I've seen among very, very successful entrepreneurs. And uh, I think you've dissected that. Oh, well, thank you. Um, yeah. What, as you look back on all of this, on your different ventures, these insane situations you've been in, are, I mean, it seems maybe like a crazy, a silly question, but what has surprised you the most? Maybe one, how bad, how many bad actors are out there? I, I, I could go on, but what, if there's some, yeah. to you, were there some surprises of like, wow, I did not expect to learn this lesson in my life? Yeah, no, it's completely fair. Um, you know, there's a few, I think I have, I, I, you know, the nice part about working with, living with your co-founder and, and obviously being married to them is like, we do talk about this a lot, right? And we talk about work often. Um, so we obviously reflect quite a bit. Um, I think, you know, there's there's a lot of ways I could group these things. And um, and I think what's important to know is like, some things are very generalizable. Um, other things aren't, right? Like sometimes you just get crap luck. Sometimes you get great luck. And sometimes like, oh my God, you're systemically screwing up. Um, and, and it's really important to focus on the systemic screw ups because you can't do much about creating your luck. Um, and so I, uh, I think, you know, every now and again, I write down like people who've been very kind to me, um, and people who've, you know, kind of screwed me over and usually, you know, inevitably the people who are very kind to me grossly outnumber the people who are, you know, trying to screw me over. Um, you know, the unfortunate part of this whole affair is like, um, my husband and I obviously really trust each other and we have, you know, a, a loving, wonderful relationship. Um, it did not prepare us at all to basically have everyone put out daggers for us, right? Like we're in a very high trust environment in our home and um, almost implicitly we kind of bring that attitude to a lot of people um, around us. And I think it makes me a very generous friend. 
um, and probably a very good ally if, if you ever need my help. I, I'm ferociously loyal. Um, but it also makes us like candidly like pretty easy people to like screw over, right? Because like I think we want to see like you know kind of we want to spread this out a bit more. We want a lot more people to um, uh, you know kind of believe in the things that we believe in. And I think the cost of of being passionate and evangelizing and, and to some degree like believing in what you do is that people will naturally take advantage of you. Um, and so, like, you know, I think it's, I think it's the minority, not the majority. I'd be you know, hopelessly nihilistic if, <laughs> if I thought this was the default mode for people. Um, but uh, I, 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 you know, I've kind of seen the worst of it, right? Like, I've had people, like, you know, basically try to extort me. And I've had, I've had um, you know, people basically try to take away all of my money. <laughs> um, and, uh, and for what, right? Um, and, uh, you know, them and, and what rights, you know? Um, the, the thing that's been the most frustrating about this is like the people who try to get the most amount of money from like the Tezos Foundation have been the people who've been least entitled, you know, in my opinion, um, to having done any like value add to the project. Yeah. Um, and that's been very frustrating because it's like, you know, where do you get that sense of entitlement and who acts this way? It's just very foreign from my like moral value scheme. Um, so that's been a little bit like frustrating. And I think it's a reflection of you know, my, my general optimism and kind of belief in people, and it's, it's very much uh, a flank that it's obvious to, to nail me on. Um, so that's upsetting, but uh, it's obviously not something I can do much about. And, uh, and you know, the other thing that's, that's been surprising about uh, this, um, I guess, whole affair is, like, the extent to which um, people are resilient, right? Like, <laughs> Like, yeah. I, you know, I, I think I think you kind of upregulate to like stress, for example, like, you know, normally I recount this story and people are like, how the hell, did, how, how is your hair still a color, you know, I'm like, I don't know, you kind of get used to it. And they're like, no, you really don't. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I feel like I've seen it all. And at some point, you know, our joke with with the whole Gever situation is like, what's the worst that can happen? I go bankrupt, like, ah, you know, <laughs> like no one's going to die. It's not a helicopter crash. <laughs> um, and, uh, and like, you know, the most important things in the world are things you can't buy, which is like, you know, relationships with people, like affection, like health, intelligence. Um, and like, there's just, you know, I've got a lot of stuff for free and, you know, money is, I guess, like icing on the cake to some degree, but um, I, I think it's, there are things that are way more expensive and that you can't buy. I think your sense of optimism and the fact that you still believe in this community, that there's good that can come into the world, that's truly remarkable, that you can come out the other side of all that madness with an optimistic approach and, and faith in yourself that there are some things that bad actors can't take away from us. So as we wrap up our conversation, I could yeah. talk hours and hours about all of this. It's fascinating. Um, but as we wrap up our conversation, I always like to finish with a question about the future. Um, and so my favorite question is, what is giving you hope for the future right now? Given everything you've experienced and learned, what are you looking forward to? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, this, this year has really been, well, last year rather, 2020 was really the pit because, um, you know, it's not just that we had the rampant coronavirus like spreading to the world seamlessly without any sort of containment strategy. Um, it's also the case that like institutions like uniformly failed us, right? Like, um, you know, if you believe the press releases from, uh, from, from Moderna and things like that, you know, there was a vaccine that was created basically in February, right? Um, and things like challenge trials and, and, and you know, a bit, more, a, a bit more of a nimble approach to um, containing this would have probably saved, you know, um, in the order of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives, if not millions. Um, 
And it's really like, you know, the WHO is giving, you know, uh, misleading information. The press has completely failed people in terms of um, helping them evaluate their, um, you know, their, their, their risk factors and stuff like that. Um, on the bright side, uh, scientists keep scientisting. Like, you know, that hasn't deterred people from actually trying to innovate and like good things. And like um, underneath, uh, you know, the sort of institutions that have filled us is now like a reborn sense of, I guess, of skepticism, which is probably healthy in a democracy. And, um, and more importantly, like, it hasn't deterred the people who can actually fix these things <laughs> um, from fixing them. Like, there are still doctors who go to work every day, and there aren't, you know, so verklempt and, and you know, uh, tossing their hands up. Like, you know, it's, it's, um, it's very inspiring that, like, you, you've seen a lot of acts of heroism and charity um, even when everyone is basically trying to like save themselves. Um, and there's, this is very real as an existential threat. So, um, you know, I'm really happy about the mRNA vaccines becoming like a thing. You know, I saw today that there's going to be, um, there at least are early promises of a multiple sclerosis like um, vaccination trial is based on the same technology. Like that's fantastic. If this heralds a, like um, a new age of, of solving like previously, un, un, you know, curable diseases, like, that will at least be one silver lining from this complete, you know, um, hellhole that has been 2020. Um, but uh, yeah, I, you know, I, 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 I'm just really happy that, you know, I, I back entrepreneurs, not, not politicians, right? <laughs> so uh, there's a reason, and I, I'm, I'm very glad that I do. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. If anyone can come out of the experiences you have, and on the other side of this, well, hopefully we're on the other side of this pandemic peak with a case for optimism, um, it is you. And I am so grateful that you've shared that with all of us. And I think this conversation is gonna inspire a lot of people who maybe also have been through some very unexpected like pivots or trials or losses, um, especially over this last year and giving them something to, to cling to and some uh, advice for resources that have served you well in the process. So thank you so much for actually sharing that with us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you to Kathleen Brightman for joining us on the Bet on Yourself podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Bet on Yourself podcast. If you're like me, you have a lot of new insights and ideas of things you want to implement from this episode. Don't worry if you were listening to this while walking the dog or putting a baby to sleep or driving and didn't have hands free to take notes. We've done the hard work for you. Check out the show notes here in your podcast app or on my website, annhyatt.co, for additional resources. While you're there, you can also sign up for my newsletter, which always supplements these podcast themes with additional free resources. May I ask for a quick favor? Please click on that follow or subscribe button here in your podcast app so you don't miss an episode and give us a five-star rating. I'd love it if you'd also share this via your social media with your friends and tag me so that I can see what resonated with you, who you would like to hear on future episodes, and what topics are on your mind. We'll be back next week with even more content to support you in your big bets. I'll see you then.